1 Samuel 17. And I want you all to go all the way down to verse 41. I'd like to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to preach it tonight. And so uh, we're going to start with verse 41. And uh, our theme this evening is mission possible. We're going to see how mission is possible from the example here of David in, in 1 Samuel 17. Verse 41, I want you to follow as I read the scriptures. I might pause every now and then to just ask you to underline a word here and there. But I want you to just listen very carefully as I read the scriptures tonight. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. In other words, he says, who are you? You're just a kid. You're just a teenager. Who are you? And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? Thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I'll give thy flesh into the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, thou comest to me with the sword and with the spear and with the shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day, underline those two words. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And underline this entire phrase, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Amen. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this, and underline these next two words, this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass, <clears throat> when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hasted and ran. David was waiting for the moment God calls you tonight. This is the moment. Haste and run. Time comes on Sunday to next Sunday to give that faith promise mission offering. Let's haste and run. He said that David hastened and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag. He took thence a stone and he slang it. I don't know if that's good English, but it sounds pretty good. Amen. And he slang it. And he smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead. It adds new meaning about having rocks in your head. Amen? The stone sunk into his forehead and he that is the giant fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed. Underline that. David prevailed. 
By the way, Jesus prevails. Amen? Amen. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. Would you notice verse 50? But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Father, this evening we thank you for putting on our hearts for this year the theme, Mission Possible. There was an army on that battlefield of the Valley of Elah that represented Israel that for 40 days said it was not possible until David came. And so David went forward into that valley in an unusual way, in an unusual representation, with unusual weapons, but with a mighty God. And that day, God, you said something in history that has never been repeated again. And Father, we need tonight that you'd work past our unbelief, our reluctance, our hesitancy, our disobedience, our fears, our anxieties, our busyness, even our carnality. Help us from this story tonight to see the mission is possible. Heavenly Father, I plead for the precious, powerful blood of Jesus Christ to cover me and this congregation right now. I pray that you'll help me to be right in the spirit on this Lord's day as I preach, not for myself, but God, for the glory of God, and for a church that you love, a church that you died for and shed your precious blood for. Lord, on one end, we need you to feed our souls. We need you to sanctify us through thy truth, for thy word is truth. We need you in this very moment to cleanse us from all filthiness, the flesh, and all superfluity. That is the abounding, the abounding or abundance of naughtiness. And that we may receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save souls. I can't help but think that tonight and this week, hanging in the balance are thousands of souls. There's somebody here, some, several somebodies can make a difference in. And Father, I pray that you'll help us tonight to get out of our comfort zone, our preconceived ideas of what we think are priorities. Help us to see giants that are in our life that have been imposing on us, that have intimidated us. And then from there, help us to see the faith, the courage, the desire, the willingness of a David. And say that tonight, Lord, do it again. Do it again, I pray. 
whether we're young or old, that we got get just all these preconceived notions out of our mind. Lord, that we'd be glorified and pleased you this evening by decisions we should make and praying that would be honoring to God. Father, I pray on one end that you'd love us through this message and from these scriptures. On the other hand, I pray, God, that you challenge us. God, I pray you stretch us. I pray, God, you help us to, I pray that we'll come, they'll come forward some risk takers to come alongside of me tonight. They'll do something for God. Lord, it's all about you. It's all about Jesus, like, like David said, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And God, it's not about Alan Fong, and it's not about Heritage Baptist, it's about you. It's about lifting up the name of Christ and taking the head of a giant this evening, the giants of unbelief. And Lord, the giants of animism and atheism, the giants of Buddhism and Confucianism, the giants of Hinduism and Islam, and, and Lord, all these many giants there, Lord, we pray to take some heads this evening for the glory of God. We know we cannot do it in our power and our might. We cannot do it with our education and with our tools. We, it's got to be by the power of God. And so this evening, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 20 years of missions. I want to command and thank our members who for 20 years have participated in Faith Promise Mission. I'm not sure the number, I didn't go back to check, but millions of dollars, millions of dollars for 20 years have been given to Faith Promise Missions. Dollars that someone on a business level or secular level could say, well, think of what we could have done with that money. And I say to you tonight, think of what God has done with that money. Amen? I think of what God has done. I think about all the countries where we have missionary representation. I think about countries where we've been able to help be part of that equality that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 8, where the burden has been shared among many Baptist churches like ours and helping get missionaries to the field and keep them on the field. And honestly, I was thinking about that this morning, the platform. I want to thank our founding members. We've grown old together for 20 years, and some of you have come along the way, and, and some of you have grown old with us these last five years and 10 years, even the last 12 months with us as we have tried to, uh, to strive together for the faith of the gospel and advancing the cause of Christ. I remind you tonight as we get into our message about the goals of a missions conference. Our missions conference emphasis is, is the following. Number one, to remind us as a church that we have a mission to do. I, it's kind of sad we only really make a strong emphasis once a year. Maybe I need to change that for next year and make it more often. But it's to remind us that, the, that as a church we have a mission to do. It's to raise our awareness and increase our awareness of the need need for laborers and churches. It is to help us then see that together as a church, we participate in the financing of missions by supporting missionaries of like precious faith alongside of other Baptist churches of like precious faith. We come together for the financing of it. Now God's method, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, We've seen for every year. God has given us in his, in his word the financing method through faith promised missions where we gather together and give an offering above our tithe to, to help support and keep missionaries on the field. And then through the missions conference to pray for and support laborers from out of our church. Now tonight we want to see several things. And, and this is my goal for tonight I'm pr I've prayed for. Number one, I'm praying that God would just increase our awareness. And I'm praying that God would give us a greater burden to pray. And I'm praying that, that uh, a lot of us will take our 
prayer page that we get every Wednesday night. And maybe this week, we'll allocate that this week to just isolate some missionaries that we will be praying for. We heard from Brother Struthers tonight. We ought to be praying for England. We ought to be praying for all of Europe. And I'm thankful that we have a missionary we support over in Croatia. And we're praying that God will use him. Just recently, they had a baptismal service. Brother Brad Lowry, he was a seasoned pastor here in, in, in the Oklahoma area. Did a great work for God. And uh, Lord, the Lord called him there to Croatia. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Brother Hetzer, who's had a great work in Idaho. And God's called him to Sri Lanka to do a great work there. But all across Europe and all across throughout, throughout the, the continent of Africa. And we heard from a missionary not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, Brother Bob Mack, who was here and doing a great work for God there in the Ivory Coast. And uh, we want to pray for Asia and all the sectors of Asia and the great need that's there. We want to pray for the folks down under there in Australia and New Zealand and for God to do great work there. I think of Brother, Brother Mrs. Westbrook there down, down in the island of Tasmania trying to do a great work for God there. I'm thinking about, about down in South America, Central America. I'm thinking that all the churches there. I'm looking forward to next year. We have a missionary couple. We're going to be extending invitation that, to come to be with us that is on deputation. They're, they're raising support to go to the country of Peru. They come very highly recommended. They come from a great Sydney church that does a great job in preparing their missionary to get to the field. And uh, we're excited about them coming. I'm excited about uh, a missionary coming from a restricted access country, a veteran missionary we support that uh, is going to thrill our hearts as we think about one of the more difficult areas of the world to go to. That missionary's right there, and he's doing a great work for God. to be one of our keynote speakers next year to challenge us for the gospel's sake. And, you know, when we think about the world, there's great opportunities for us to do a great work for God. And the sadness is there's a lot of these missionaries that we don't know that are doing a work for God. And a lot of national missionaries that we don't know that are doing a great work for God. So tonight my, my prayer is to inspire us about that. But my, my prayer tonight is to inspire everyone here for couples and singles. That every, God will inspire us to see our part and our role in missions. And seeing that we can have a vital role tonight. And so this evening we want to take 1 Samuel 17 and see that a mission that many men thought that was impossible. It is a mission that is possible. I want you to see the following tonight. Number one, I want you to see the villain in the story. I want you to see the villain in the story. Now, a villain is the enemy. A villain is someone that's evil. A villain is someone that is an antagonist. A villain is someone that has animosity towards something that's right. And the villain in this story we see is a giant by the name of Goliath. Notice in the first nine verses of Scripture, I'm going to just go through it really quickly here. We find that the Philistines and Israel were gathered together for a major confrontation. Notice in verse one, the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and there they were gathered together against Israel. Now, they had many confrontations leading up to that. We read about several of them going back there to the book of Judges, and several of them there in the book of 1 Samuel. And now we get to chapter 17, and there's, there's, there's the Philistines on one side, and then there's, the, there's Israel on the other side, and between them both was this great valley called the Valley of Elah. Now as we read our Bible here, we know that there was a standoff between the Israelites and the Philistines. Now you want to make a note, especially for those who are just growing in the faith and trying to understand what this all means. Where you find the Philistines represented here, they represent the world. They represent the world system which is against us and the world system that says it can't happen and the world system which is adversarial to Jesus Christ and the humanistic thinking and the world culture there if you would the cultural mindset that says that you know that these things are not possible and so we find the world in opposition to the people of God and so they were on one side the Philistines and Israel's on the other side and then we're introduced here in verse 4 to 8 something very interesting that's not brought up before we find here after several several battles that the, the Philistines had a great challenge 
champion. He's called a champion. He was a mighty warrior. He was the esteemed champion of all the nation. He was the one that everyone looked up to. He was the great hero of the nation. His name was Goliath, and he was a monster of a man. Goliath, as we read here, the Bible says that he stood, if you would, it says he stood six cubits in a span. Now that could be anywhere from nine feet, six inches to nine feet, nine inches tall. No matter how you cut it, that's pretty big, amen? He was a big man. As you consider Goliath and his height, consider the armor that he wore. He had full body armor on. Notice the Bible says that he wore a coat of brass if you would, a coat of brass that was uh, a coat of mail that, that, that he wore. And they said the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of brass in, in verse 5. Now experts say that, that could have been anywhere from 125 to as much as 175 pounds. Anyway, you cut it, that's heavy, right? That's a lot of body armor he had. He had this brass coat of mail that was on. He had a helmet on his head that was very heavy. Then we're told that on his, on his ankles and his legs, he, protecting his shin area up to his knees, the Bible said he had greaves of brass upon his legs. And he had a target of press between his shoulders. I mean, he had shoulder covering. I mean, you talk about this guy was decked out. He was decked out in body armor. He was well protected. And then look at his, look at his arm. Uh, if you look at his, 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 his uh, weapons, the Bible says he had a staff of a spear that was in his hand that was the size of a weaver's beam. And his spear, the spear had weighed 600 shekels of iron. Many believe that, that, that just the head alone on that spear weighed anywhere from 15 to 20 pounds. That's a lot of weight. You think about a shot putter that hoists a shot put up in the air. This guy had something equivalent to that that weighed 15 to 20 pounds in size. And it was the size of a weaver's beam. And then it tells us here <clears throat> that he had a... He said there was a man that went before him that bore a shield. We read in our scripture tonight that he had a, she, a sword by his side. Many believe that that sword that he had, that sword by itself weighed 15 pounds. Any way you cut it, this man was a giant. This man was a monster of a giant. He looked impossible to defeat. Notice he came out and he had a thundering voice. Look at verse 8. He stood and cried to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine? Ye service to Saul. Choose you a man for you and let him come to fight. Come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. And if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I mean, this man had a boisterous, thundering voice. He had one of those great intimidating voices. He was intimidating in his size. He was intimidating by his appearance. He was intimidating by his weaponry. I mean, everything about this man was something that represented a giant. He was just something way out of the ordinary there. And everyone looked at him, and it seemed like an impossible situation. Can I remind you today, we are facing giants that are villains today. We are facing giants that threaten the reaching of this world with the gospel. We see the giant of a world population where 60% of the world's population lives in that 1040 window sector of the world. Now the 1040 window sector of the world spans from Africa, as you can see on the map, from Africa going across the Middle East all the way through there in Asia. When we consider the population of the world, 60% of the world's population lives there. Listen to me tonight. 7.7 billion people and, and growing in the world. 60% of that number, four point something billion, probably four and a half to 4.8 billion people reside in that area of the world. That is a fast growing area. You think I told the Chinese department today, I was reminding them today, listen, in China alone, there's 1.3 billion people. If you add up all the Chinese speaking people in the world, there's probably 2.2 billion Chinese speaking people in the world. Add to that the country of India, which has about, very closely, about 1.2 billion people. And you look at a 
large, massive population of people there. It's exploding in growth. But here's the thing. They say that 45 to 50% of that sector, 45 to 50% of that sector has yet to hear the gospel one time. Now, we've heard that over and over again. And many of you have access to the Joshua Project. And you know what I'm talking about there. And the Joshua Project is fairly well done for the most part in giving us an idea of the world's population and an idea of what languages are spoken and what the belief system's there. And we have to understand in that 1040 window of the world, that giant sector of the world, that the main beliefs there are animism and Buddhism and atheism and, and, and Islamic beliefs and Hinduism and all of that and Confucianism and beliefs like that. These people, many of them have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ one time. And when they come, they think of it as a Western religion. They think of it, quote unquote, as a white man's religion. They think of it as an American religion. And they, don't, they, they just kind of scoff and they wonder, what can your Jesus do for me? But here's the sad part. Here's the sad part. We have a sector of the world where 60% of the world's population resides there. And over 50% of them have yet to hear the gospel one time. But here's the sad part. About, about 30-something years ago, we had 100,000 total total missionaries in the world. And when I say missionaries, I'm talking about what they would classify as evangelical missionaries. And let me help you tonight. We are not evangelical. We're fundamental Baptists, okay? There's a, there's a doctrinal distinction there, and we'll tell you about that in a future message as we preach to First and Second Thessalonians here on Wednesday nights. But, we, but they said total evangelical uh, uh, missionaries was about 71%, uh, was about 100,000. Now listen to this now. In 68 years... That number has declined from 100,000 to 29,000. A 71% drop in missionaries. And of that number, they say, of the 29,000, of all the, what we call the independent Baptist missionary sending groups, and this does not include nationals that are sent maybe from places like out of the Philippines and places like that in South Korea. But of mission groups sent out of North America, we have about 7,200, give or take a couple hundred, 7,200 independent Baptist missionaries there. It takes about 10 independent Baptist churches to produce one missionary. Now that may not bother you, but there's something wrong with that number. There's something wrong with that number. Because I think that for a generation and several generations, we've come to the point of believing that the giant of Goliath, the giant is saying out there, don't go, don't waste your life, don't waste your time, don't give your money, take the path of least resistance, you can't make a difference. I mean, think about all the harm that you're going to have and think about all the th bad things that are going to happen to you. And the giant has impregnated our thoughts with all these negative ideas and things, which by the way, that's not from God. Perfect love casteth out fear because fear causes torment. The devil is a tormentor. The devil is the one with the boisterous voice that's telling us it cannot happen. And so we see this villain where there's a huge disproportionate number of missionaries and churches in comparison to the world population. And so now we live in a world environment where technology is moving quickly. And this technology is moving so quickly that we're amazed at all these startup companies and these opportunities, especially here in this area we live in. And so we are mesmerized by getting on board with the technology companies and we're getting on board with all these wonderful things there and wonder, wondering what, what benefits will they give me and what about this? And we're intrigued with all that. But the idea of going to the mission field, the idea of being assimilated into a culture, the idea of learning a language, and the idea of 
investing our life with a culture of people that we can give our life to, to invest in giving the gospel, the eternal word of God, the eternal gospel. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away, Jesus said. The eternal gospel, which is able to save. So let me tell you tonight, you can invest in every IPO you want. You can invest in every stock you want. You can invest in every real estate investment you can. And you can make oodles upon oodles of money. But none of those are going to bring souls to Jesus Christ tonight. Satan's a villain. The giant of unbelief, the giant of antagonism is saying it can't be done. And even right now tonight, as I'm standing here preaching, Satan is firing those fiery darts of unbelief at you and you and you and me. He's telling some teenager today, don't go, your parents will get upset with you. Don't go, you, you'll fail on the mission field. Don't go, you can't learn the language. Don't go, you won't be able to raise support. Don't go, single person. Don't go, young couple, because you're going to leave your job. You don't realize what you're going to leave behind. Don't go because you, you're going to face the opposition your family. Listen, Satan's firing all those fiery darts at us tonight. We see a villain, but you notice something else that's bothersome. Would you notice verses 11 and 24? We see a villain. Would you notice a void? A void. And you would think at this moment in time as this giant came out on the first day, Saul, who himself was a pretty tall man, he was the tallest man in all of Israel, from what I read, some believe he could have been as much as seven feet tall. He was a big man. And just before that, we read in 1 Samuel 13 and 14 about Jonathan and his armor bearer. And how they confronted a group of Philistines and defeated them and increased the morale of the nation. And you would think because Jonathan was there and Abner was there and Saul was there and David's three brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shaman were there and many other men and perhaps right at that time, perhaps some of David's mighty men that we read about in 2 Samuel 23, perhaps some of those men were in the infantry there with Saul. And this is the Bible's description of how they reacted to the invitation of the giant to come fight with them. Would you notice verse 11? And when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed, greatly afraid. Look at verse 24, 40 days later. This is the day that David came down there. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, would you notice that when they saw the man, they fled from him. We're so afraid. There was a void. No one would go. They ran and were afraid. They got uneasy as every morning as the sun came up, they knew that giant would come out again. They knew he'd keep threatening them. And they knew that as he kept threatening them, that they would become more scared and more fearful. And they, the Bible says they got so fearful in verse 24, by that 40th day, they fled from him. And the Bible says they were not only afraid, they were sore afraid. There was a void. 
Beloved brother and sister in Christ, we live in an age that's described in Revelation 3, an age of lukewarm, of a lukewarm and complacent church age that is bur- not burdened to reach this world with the gospel. We live in an age where young people and young couples are afraid to step out in faith and venture out to see what God can do. There's a void of faith. There's a void of commitment. There's a void of a pioneering spirit. There's a void of people desiring and wondering, can God do something for me? There's a void of prayer warriors praying for laborers for the harvest. There's a void of men answering the call to go and preach the gospel. I'm just saying tonight, there is a void. There is not one man in Israel that could say they could get it done. Every man inside their own little tent. And every man there as they got in their little pup tent there. And every man there as they were on their one side of their, of their mountain, they were saying, it's not possible. Nobody can beat that giant. And if you go out and defeat that giant, if you're the one to volunteer to go, do you realize you'll put the whole nation at risk? Do you realize if you lose in that battle, you'll put the nation at risk and all of us will become servants to the Philistines? Not one man was willing to go. Listen, it's easier to spread fear than it is to spread faith. It's easy to cause dissension than it is to create unity. And Paul, we get to Romans chapter 10, he said, Brother, my heart's desire prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. And he said, How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how should they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach except they be sent? And I'm saying tonight, Heritage Baptist Church and Pastor Fong, we have a void. We have a void. The giants crying out, challenge me. The giant of Hinduism, challenge me. The giant of Buddhism, challenge me. The giant of atheism, challenge me. The giant of Islam, challenge me. The giant of materialism, challenge me. Challenge me. Send somebody out. Send your best man out. Send the best you got. And not one man will go. We find a void. We see a villain. We see a void. In this void, there are many voices. There's nobody answering. Everybody's asking questions. How? How? How am I going to get there? How's it going to get done? How? How? Oh, tonight we see a villain. We see a void. But you notice tonight, I want to encourage you this evening. Do you notice in verses 12 to 29, we see a visionary. This is where David comes to the picture. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Amen. And I love this part. Please make note of this. If you're a teenager, college student, oh, basically everybody here tonight. I want you to see in verses 12 to 29 how to spot a leader that's arising and a leader that God uses. And David is sent there by his father on a different mission. David, you might say, is being sent by his father on a short-term missions trip there to the Valley of Elah. Because his father, Jesse, is thinking, man, it's been 40 days and, and uh, there's this just kind of stalemate. Nothing's happened there. And so he says, I, I need to get a checkup on Eliab and Shammah and Abinadab. I need to find out what's going on. And so he turns to David. He says, David, here's what I want you to do. He says, you've been up on the field there taking, taking care of the sheep. He says, what I want you to do, and by the way, it was David came running to his dad. Every time his dad called him, he came running to him. That's a good sign. He was obedient. He, was, he, didn't, he didn't give his dad pushback. He didn't give his dad say, oh, dad, I'm not busy. 
busy, I'm too busy here. He came down to see his dad, and his dad said, hey, listen, this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to go check out your brothers, and I want you to go see how they're doing. I want you to, I've got some cheese, he said, I've got some bread, and some things like that, some vittles here. Notice if you would, he said, I've got some bread here for them. And he says, I've got some cheese that I want you to have. Notice verse 17. He says, then Jesse said to David, take now for thy brethren an ephah, this parched corn, and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren. So he says, number one, I want you to bring some relief to your brothers. I want you to bring them some bread. They probably have just, they need something different because they've been eating army-type food, military-type food. And, and uh, they've been getting their water from a brook. I'll tell you about that in just a minute here. And he says, they probably need a little bit of relief. And they probably need some good old homegrown grow, grow, corn that we have from our field. So he said, brought, brought this ephah of corn. And some bread. Just give me enough to help him through the day. And then, Lord, he said, for King Saul and for some of the men there, here's what I want you to do in verse 18. Carry these 10 cheeses. Now, when he says cheese, you're not talking small little packages. He's talking about these big blocks of cheese they made. Carry these 10 cheeses unto the captain of their thousand and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. In other words, he says, I want you to go there, David, and all I want you to do in this mission is go check out and see how your brothers are doing. See how they're making out right there. Give them some food. Give some cheese to the captain of the thousands who's over them. May have been Abner. We don't know who it was. Maybe in Jonathan. It doesn't really matter who it was. Take that to them. And so David, the Bible says, does several things. Number one, he very, first of all, he makes sure that the sheep are well taken care of. Now, that's a good thing. Let me tell you tonight. You know, sometimes we, we're asked to do a lot of different things, and we have to multitask in ministry. Don't abandon one ministry to do something else. Make sure you take good care of the ministry that you've been trusted with before you go to something else. Amen? I mean, don't, don't abandon that, okay? I mean, there's a lot of competing things there. Let me, let me give you an example. There's a lot of competing things that compete for our time, but we only have organized so many once a week. And it's easy for you to abandon something else and say, well, then, then I, and what we typically abandon, we'll abandon so many. I'm being serious. There's not a lot of amens to that. And we're going to abandon that and go somewhere else, go somewhere else and do our thing, and that gets abandoned. Now, I'm thankful we had 150, 200 people, but that ought to be the norm, not the exception. Amen. Okay? Don't tell me you're so many church or you believe in so if you're not there. And so anyway, we, we have Paul, we, David, he entrusts the sheep with the keeper. And then he gets in a carriage, and, and then when he gets down there in the carriage, he entrusts the carriage with somebody else. And, and the Bible says all along the way that David's just fired up, and David's excited, and he's just thankful for them. Notice we get up here in verse 20, and he's so excited about just didn't get any chance to go into the, into, the, into the valley of Elah there. And the Bible says in verse 20, David rose up early in the morning, and he left the sheep with the keeper, and he took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. I mean, he came, and you know, for David, he's his heroes, listen, listen to that. His heroes were Saul, and his heroes were Eliab, and Abinadab, and Shammah, and his heroes were Jonathan, and his heroes were men like that. And he thought, man, I just get to go for just a minute to see what's going on, to drop off some food there. And the battle was in rain. It was early in the morning. And he got there just in time as the giant kid, his morning walk. And his morning walk consisted of going out to his edge of the Valley of Elah and shouting out with a thundering, intimidating voice, send your best men out, send your men out. Who do you got to send out to me? And he kind of did that with a, a boisterous laugh because he knew they wouldn't send anybody out. And the Bible says that David was there and it says in verse 23, as, as the giant, as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, my name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. Now I want you to notice this. He hears this giant, this is the first time David's heard this. In fact, this is the first time David even knew this confrontation was going on like this. And this is the first time David finally realized that they were at a stalemate, and no blood had been shed, and no battle had been fought. And this is the first time David got there. Now, remember, David was not necessarily trained in going to war. He knew how to fight, but he wasn't trained in going to war. He had never 
never gone there. In fact, Saul's own words were, thou art a youth, there are youth, but this man has been a soldier of war since his youth. He said, you're, you're not experienced there. He, he understood how to fight, but he didn't understand how to fight on the battlefield according to Saul. And so David's there, when he hears these words, and he's thinking at that moment as he hears these words, he's thinking as a visionary, man, this is great. Man, maybe my brother lied. My oldest brother was about 10 to 15 years older than him, probably 15 years older than him. He said, he said maybe your life's going to go up and confront this old giant. And then he looked, Eliab didn't move. And he's thinking, well, maybe Abinadab's going to go fight this giant, but Abinadab didn't move. And he's thinking, maybe Shammah's going to go fight this giant, but Shammah didn't move. You've got to remember, these are his older brothers. These are the brothers that he looked up to, and he thought they were the greatest men alive. And then he thought, well, maybe my king is going to go. Maybe King Saul's going to move. But he saw King Saul, he withdrew himself to the background. He didn't want to be seen, and King Saul was trembling. And he looked at Jonathan, and Jonathan wasn't going to run ahead of his dad. And he looked at Abner, and Abner was not going to run ahead of the king. And he looked over all these men, these muscular men, these mighty men of Saul and nobody moved and David listen what started out as excitement he started to get a fire in his heart he started to get a burning in his heart and listen as he looked out there he starts asking men hey what's going on here he says isn't there anybody that's going to go out he said what's the king going to do for the man that's going to go he's thinking his mind maybe the king has an offer maybe they're not clear in what the king has offered as a reward and maybe they're not really clear on what their obligation result is and maybe they're not really clear what they're supposed to do look what he says here Verse 25, and the men of Israel, they were so scared, they said, have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel has he come up, and it shall be when that the man who killeth him, the king shall enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, make his father's house free in Israel. Now the men were giving a good report. They said, hey, the king's already promised us, hey, we won't be taxed. Uh, if we win this battle, if you go out and fight this giant, you won't be taxed. You get the king's daughter as your wife. You'll get the favor of the king. You'll be part of the family there. He says, you'll get great riches. He says, it's all set up there. And, it's, and, and, and David's hearing this. He's thinking, man, that's all great stuff, but nobody's going. But then those men said, have you seen this man? Nobody wants to go. And so David asked in verse, 25, verse 26, he said, what shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away his reproach from Israel? He said, what shall be done to the man that does this? He says, is everybody going to go? What, where, where, where is this all that and you can watch David the fire is growing inside of his heart and he's getting a vision of what God can do I mean he's surveying the scene as we get to the later verses I want you to understand this he's been surveying this giant he's been watching he's looking he knew exactly where the vulnerable spot was on this giant you see visionaries are looking for opportunities and visionaries look for weak spots and visionaries look to where to defeat the enemy and visionaries are already thinking the next step ahead what they've got to do when David was a visionary he was a leader in the making he started getting a vision what God could do in that valley of Elah he started getting a vision about taking that giant's head off. He started getting a vision about where he would get his stones from. He saw a brook over there, and I'll tell you about the brook in a minute. He saw that brook over there, and he saw this flowing brook where the men got their water and they drank from, and he saw all of these things, and he's getting a vision in his heart what God can do. Hey, listen tonight. It's not enough that I bring five missionaries here, and we spent thousands of dollars to bring these missionaries here. It's not enough that I ask you to pledge and participate in faith promised mission, and that you give $700,000 to the glory of God. That's all great stuff, but it's not enough that we do that. I'm asking you tonight, I'm asking this week going forward that we get a vision for the world. We get a vision for the continent. We get a vision for people groups that we know nothing about. We get a vision to get out of our comfort zone and to learn a language that we don't know. We get a comfort, get a vision to see what God can do through somebody wholly committed to him for his glory. Oh, tonight we look at the situation and David's getting a fire in his soul. He's getting a vision of things that can be done. He said, what shall be done to this man? And then notice verse 26. Who is this? David wasn't scared. Amen. David wasn't scared. David had faith. David was there. And you got to remember, David is not dressed like a soldier. He's there in shepherd's garments. Amen. He's not there with shoes ready to go to war. 
He says, who is this? He calls him a pagan. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies? And would you underline these three words, the living God. As far as the men of Israel, God was dead. Let me tell you tonight, God's been pulling on your heart. He's been touching you and pulling at your heart to surrender. And you're not going because you've got all these things that Satan's put in your mind. Let me tell you what, you need to get a fresh vision of the living God tonight. A fresh vision of a God who answers prayer. A fresh vision of God, what God can do. I reminded tonight of Dr. Rick Martin. Dr. Rick Martin, before anybody knew he was, he was just an old hick boy from the, 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 the state of Kansas. And Dr. Rick Martin went to one of our leading Bible colleges back in the 70s, a college where the pulpit was hot and the preaching was hot and so when he was made, made an emphasis there. And those days, those men learned how to win souls. They learned how to build churches. They learned how to reach people for Christ. And he went up there and, and in his shy little way, Dr. Rick Martin was way up in the balcony there, the First Baptist Church of Hammond. He was there for chapel and a missionary who was sick to his body, can, cancer had eaten this missionary's body down to, down to nothing. This mystery got up and he preached a message. I sat where they sat. And that missionary today was the catalyst for what God is doing in the Philippines right now. The greatest missionary sending place in all the world is the Philippines right now. When I go to the Philippines, I can't help the moment I get on that Filipino soil until I leave to weep and to cry over the passion, the love my Filipino brothers and sisters have for the world. The sacrifices, what they give up, the preachers from over there that just on fire for God. And we support some of them. June Coronel was in Zanzibar. Javier Garcia, who's in Vietnam. Rick Martin heard that preacher preach. He didn't know that preacher was going to die in just a few more months of liver cancer. 44 years of age. Rick and Becky Martin, they held hands. Made the long walk from the balcony this is the old balcony, all the way down the stairs, the first floor, made the way to the altar. Said, God, if you use us, we'll go. We'll go. And for Rick Martin, who doesn't have much of a personality, he's got a very dry sense of humor. But I have to tell you, if you ask me to list to tell you the 10 hardest working men in the world, he's got to be right at the top of the list. I don't think Rick Martin weighs probably more than 95 to 100 pounds dripping wet. I mean, last conference I was at with him, I put my hand on his back, it's all bone. I mean, I don't even know if there's skin on it, it's just all bone there. He's just all bone, he's worked so hard. He's just a couple years older than me, but man, he's got a lot of years on him. Rick Martin got a vision while he was up in that balcony. He never touched the soil of the Philippines, but he got a vision. You know what that vision's at today? As we sit here tonight, there's a new work, either extension ministry or church being started every five to six days because of Rick Martin, what he started in 1975 when he went to the area of Iloilo. Fathom that for just a minute. I have his manual on how to start 
a, a church on the mission field. Nothing, nothing strategic about it. Nothing, nothing that's fantastic about it. It's just doing what the Bible says with the power of God. He got a vision of that. And you look at David here. David started getting a vision and burning in his heart there. And so David asked those men, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? But nobody went forward and the people answered him the same matter. They said the same thing. They said, listen, this giant is too big and this giant is too much. But notice something else. David went from there. Notice verse 29. Would you notice the statement of a visionary? We get to verse 29, 28, 29, and he's scorned by his older brother Eliab. I'll say something about that in a minute. He's scorned by his older brother Eliab. Why camest thou down hither? You watch it tonight, young person or couple. If you make your way down hither, someone's going to scorn you. The devil's going to ask you, why camest thou down hither? Why are you going down over here? Why camest thou down? Somebody's going to scorn you tonight. I promise it won't be me and it won't be God. And as he thought about those words, would discourage 99% of the population. David got started burning in his soul even more. The fire was just being, it was like gasoline being poured in the fire. And notice David's statement in verse 29. What have I now done? Listen, that David's statement, what have I now done? It should not be what I did not do. What have I now done? And notice the question is, is there not a cause? I mean, that's the statement of a visionary. Is there not a cause? And I remind you tonight, we see a visionary here. Is it, is it not true the Bible says the fields are white into harvest? Is there not a cause? Is it not true that, there, that the, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few? Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason that we can go to the mission field and bring the gospel there? Is there not a cause? Isn't the fact that we should glorify God? Is there not a cause? Is it, do, do we not believe in the fact that our God is able to do exceeding abundantly of all that we ask or think, is there not a cause? Do we not believe in the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves from the uttermost to the guttermost? Jesus can save anybody. The gospel works anywhere. Is there not a cause? David was consumed in his heart and he said publicly there to Eliab and to all the men around him and the word got back to King Saul. Here was a young man who did not come for the war but he got a cause. He had a vision in his heart. I'm just saying tonight here we see a visionary. May God help us tonight be burning in our heart that there is a cause. There is a reason. We have a cause in the local New Testament church. That same cause is the cause that Jesus gave on that mountain in Matthew 28 to his disciples that nucleus of the New Testament church there he said go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you and lo I'm with you always even to the end of the world I'm saying tonight as we consider the words of a visionary the heart of a visionary he takes God at his word he believes God that is living he believes in a God who answers prayer he believes in a God who can save souls and he believes in a God who will take care of it no matter what it may be it didn't matter to David that he was the only one who believed God. He believed God could use him. Amen. And so we see this villain. We see the void. We see a visionary. Would you notice the voices? <clears throat> when David said that, before and after, there's some voices. There are voices of discouragement. There's the voice of Eliab, which you notice very carefully, verse 28. Eliab, his eldest brother. There's a sin we seldom think about confessing. You've been saved for a period of time. It's very easy for us to slip into the elder brother syndrome. When Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He wanted to kill the vision. He said, why camest thou down hither? 
With whom has thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? He's, he's actually mocking him and saying, who are you compared to the armies of Israel? I know thy pride. Every hypocrite says that. The naughtiness of thy heart. For thou art come down, thou mightest see the battle. Voice of discouragement. You can't go. Who are you? What are you doing here? Listen to me tonight. <laughs> Families. Families. Don't be alive if God calls your children. Don't be alive if God calls your children. And maybe some of you are older Christians who would say to a young person, who are you? You have nothing to offer. Don't be an Eliab. Don't be an Eliab. We hear the voice of Eliab, but notice we hear the voice of King Saul. Look at verse 33. Then Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. It's a voice of discouragement. Thou art but a youth. You know, that's what we say as parents. We say, you know, you're just a kid. You're just a youth. You, you, you don't have any experience. You don't have any wisdom. God knows they don't have any wisdom. Amen. You're just making another wild decision like you've done many times before. You're just a youth. You have no experience. You got no money. You can't talk. You can't speak. You, you can't do things. You mess things up. You, you, you fumble over yourself. You're, you're clumsy. You have this problem, that problem. You don't have this. You're just but a youth. But look at this man. He's but a man of war from his youth. Hey, listen. You listen to those voice discouragement. They're not looking with the eye of faith. They're looking through the eye of the flesh. I wonder what voice of discouragement or keep us from participating in faith promise missions. I wonder what voice of discouragement are telling you, don't go forward. I wonder what voice of discouragement are trying to tell you, don't go to the mission field. I wonder what voice of discouragement are trying to tell some man who God has put the urge to preach inside you, but you're not preaching the word of God. He's telling you, don't go because you're going to, look at what you're going to lose. Let me tell you tonight, think of what you can gain when you serve Jesus Christ. Amen. So we hear the voices. The tension goes back to David. We see the villain. We see the void. We see the visionary. We see the voice. But you notice the volunteer tonight. Because David could have been easy discouraged. And David could have turned around and walked his way back. And hid himself in the corner somewhere. And says, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do anything. But that didn't deter David. That didn't discourage David. Remember, David did not go there to fight a battle. But God chose to put him there. Because God, that was the place he would identify where God would call him. God had already given his approval on David just one chapter before. And God had already put the anointing on David. David had the anointing of God. All he needed to be was in the right place at the right time. Let me tell you tonight. Maybe God might lead you to a valley where there's a trial. And my God may lead you to a valley where there's some darkness. And there at that valley, you need to look at that place. It's either going to be a valley of darkness or it's going to be a valley of decision. And if it's a valley of decision, it needs to be a place where you identify, that's the place where God called me. That's the place where God said, you need to do something about it. And that's the place where you can say, God, use me to make a difference with my life. And so David, we see him, he, he, he just, he says here, hey, you can use me, I'll go. And notice some things about this volunteer. Notice verse 32. He was a committed volunteer. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. And man, he's, he's rising as a leader at that moment. I mean, he wasn't trying to usurp Saul's authority. He wasn't trying to take Saul's place. But he said, listen, king. He says, listen, no problem. Don't let any man's heart fail because of him. Now, he wasn't, by the way, I like David's spirit. He wasn't being disparaging against everybody else. Amen. 
He wasn't being disparaging about anybody, what they weren't going to do. He wasn't worrying what other people didn't do. He was worrying about what he was supposed to do. Amen? That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to worry about what everybody else is not doing. We're supposed to worry about what we're supposed to be doing. And so he said, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant. There you go. May I say this tonight? Let me just give you a couple things about the missions conference tonight. Missions conferences can be, and meeting the missionaries can be a very emotionally moving experience. But I want to tell you, and my staff can tell you this tonight. In my orientation time with all the missionaries, I have certain rules I put with them. And I'm not being controlling, but I know something you don't know. And I'll tell the missionaries things like this. Now, missionaries, we love you. And we're going to give you a good offering. And if we get more, we're going to give you more. But I do not want you taking money from our members. First of all, you don't know the missionary as a member. You might be moved, so I want to give them some money. Don't cut your own side deals with the missionaries. If you're going to have any giving, do it through the local church. Right. Do it through the local church. Giving is through the local church. Number one, I'm trying to keep, protect you in case one of the missionaries there happens to be dishonest. I don't think any of these people are. I think, I, I think we've done a good job vetting them. But you know what? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Amen? You don't know. And I've been to places. And let me tell you this. I've been, to, I've been in conferences. I've been in conferences. And I preach for other preachers, even on the mission field. Remember, he'll give me money, he'll give me something there. And you know what the first thing I do ethically as a pastor? I go up to that pastor and say, Pastor, I need you to know, they gave this to me, I give them the money. Oh, they gave me this gift. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to give it back to them or do you want it? What do you want? And nine times out of ten, the missionaries still keep the gift. But most of the time they give me the money, I give it right back to the missionary. I give it right back to the pastor. Because I don't want to be accused of taking money from their members. And number, one, number, number two, if you're not a tithing member, you shouldn't be giving your, mission, your tithing money to that, to, that, to that missionary. Your tithings belong to local New Testament church. Amen. Okay? You deacons better say amen to that too. Amen. Okay? Try to protect you. So while you're controlling, no, I just, I don't want to get blindsided. I've had enough of those. And I don't want missionaries sending you their emails separately and stuff like that so that they can kind of go on the side there and they, they know how to work it. They know how to work it. You'd be surprised as a pastor of a church what I find out from missionaries just on the side there. And I instruct those missionaries, and if you have a problem with that, I said, and I find out you did something that went outside of us, I will send you back home. I, we've already paid you for your plane ticket. I will send you back home. That you ask my staff. I always tell them that in the meetings. Do I, do I say that, Brother AJ? Ask Brother Dan. Brother Justin, I say that, I say that every time those meetings are there, okay? And I'm straight up with these. I'll get them one-on-one. -on -one. I don't care if they're bigger than me. I'll tell them one-on-one. -on -one. This, this is God's local church. I'm not going to have you take advantage of our church. Some of them know how to do that. There are play guys that do that. They're professional mercenaries that know how to do those kind of things. And I don't want you getting taken advantage of there. So please understand, we want to encourage them to go to the local church. I want them to be ethical. And when I went to the Philippines, my last spiritual leadership conference, I did a session. Brother Justin was in there. I did a conference. I did a session. We had 200 preachers in there about learning how to be ethical. Listen, I could have given an invitation at the time, and all those preachers would have been down at the front because a lot of them were doing things that were unethical. And I'm just saying tonight, we're trying to keep this thing ethical and right there. So let me tell you tonight, David was committed. Notice what he says here. Thy servant, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go. He says, hey, I'll go. But I'm your servant. I'll go in your name. I'll go on your behalf. I'll go for the Lord. I'll go and fight with him. He was committed. He said, look, I'll go. And the first thing you need to have, if you're going to go for God, you better be a servant's heart. Listen, if you don't have a servant's heart now, you're not going to have a servant's heart on the mission field. You've got to be committed. Notice something else. He was a committed volunteer, but very quickly, notice he was a credible volunteer. 
Listen, Saul looked at him. He says, man, you, you need some body armor, man. And you need, you need, you need an AK-47, amen? Their version of AK-47 was a sword and a spear there, right, amen? And he says, you need a, you need a Glock 40, 40 millimeter here. You need one of these type of things here. No, he looked at, he looked at David and he said, David, he said, look at, wear my armor. That's pretty pitiful. He said, wear my armor. Hey, Saul, wear your own armor and go to the battlefield, amen? That's pretty pitiful. Go on my behalf. But Saul was glad to relinquish his armor and put it on David there. And he gave it to David. And notice what it says here. Uh, he, says that, he says, David, why don't you go there? Now, before that all happened, look what David's words in verses 32 to 37. David, he says, well, tell, he says, son, you can't go. Look at you. He said, let no man's heart fail. He said, look it, I'll tell you why I'm credible. I'll tell you why you can trust me. He says, number one, I, I'm a shepherd. When I was on the backfield there, he, look what he says here. He said, little man's failed him. He said, uh, he said, little man's heart failed him. Verse 34, when, I, when I, thy servant kept his father's sheep, there came a lion and a bear. Now, I don't know if they came the same time or they're separate incidences. I, I like to believe they were separate incidents. And he said, they came out and they took a lamb out of the flock. Now, he got caught. He was blindsided. A lion came in, grabbed one of his flock. A bear came another day and grabbed one of his flock. And David said, you know what? I chased after them in verse 35. Nobody was watching except for God. But David's story was very compelling and very credible because David described as someone who actually confronted a lion and actually confronted a bear. And I went out after him and I smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. And thy servants slew both the lion and the bear. You know what he's saying there? Listen. I've, I've fought battles like this before. I've fought with foes bigger than me. I can tell you, I've, been, I've done, gotten it done. He says, if this uncircumcised Philistine thinks he's anything equal to a bear line, I'll take on him. Let me tell you this tonight. If you're not winning souls here, you're not going to win souls on the mission field. If you're not burning with the same burden here, you're not going to get burdened over there. You can talk about all these other things you want to do and all these other strategies, things like that. If you're not burdened here and you don't have the power of God here, you're not going to get it over there. And so David was saying, here, listen, I fought the lions. I fought the bears back on the battlefield there. I've got it done. I Listen, if you want to find if I'm credible, look at these scars on me. Listen, he said, king, I grabbed that lion by the beard. And he said, I grabbed that bear by the beard, whatever he could get. And he turned and I smote him and I killed him. And he said, if I could take the lion and barrel, God will give me this Philistine. Listen, he had credibility there. Notice something else here. He was a credible volunteer, but notice something else. He was a confident volunteer. Look at verse 37. Now, he didn't take credit for it. This is important. Now, listen to me tonight. What a great, humble servant he was. He didn't take credit for any of the victories. Don't you take credit for what God's doing. Don't you take credit for what God's doing. The Lord. That's our church, is it not? That's our ministries, is it not? The Lord. The Lord that delivered me. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. The Lord that delivered me. Out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, he would deliver me out of the hand of Slytherin. You know what he showed at that moment in time was so critical for the ministry? He demonstrated he had faith in private that that faith in private would prove itself as faith in public there. We need faith. And that's why we have faith promise missions. And that's why we have missions conference to build our faith. And that's why we have building programs. And that's why we stretch our church a little bit more with evangelistic emphasis so we can build our faith. And David had faith in God. He only wanted Saul to realize, I have faith in God. God's proven himself faithful to me. And I've got, I know God will take care of me. I know God's going to win this battle. The battle's not mine. The battle's the Lord's. But notice something else. He had keenness as a volunteer. So Saul said, okay. You sound pretty credible. Looks like you got faith. Look at verse 38. So Saul armed David with his armor and put a helmet of brass upon his head. He armed it with a coat of mail. You know what David, Saul did? He stripped himself of all of his armor and put it on David. And that's pretty pitiful to me, okay? Here, you can wear this. 
Hey, older people, don't have a vicarious sending of your young people or your kids. Don't get them to do what you should be doing. Amen? Be the volunteer you're supposed to be. And so he puts on David, and David starts going like this. Uh, this is for a seven-foot man. I'm barely six feet tall. I'm not dancing. So be, don't bear in mind, okay? You know what he did? He took it off. I want you to see a statement here. Look what his statement is. And David said in verse 39, I cannot go with these. You underline that. I cannot go with these. And look at the next statement. For I have not proved them. Listen to me tonight. Look up here. The devil, the giants of this world want you to think that education will win the world to Christ. Education will not win the world to Christ. The world will want you, the giant of materialism will tell, get you to think, if I have all this money, we can win the world to Christ. God doesn't need our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord. Listen, you, you can give all your money you want, but then thank God for it. But I'm going to tell you tonight, that is not a subject. David said, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. Hey, listen, education is not proven. Materialism is not proven. All those things are not proven. What's proven is faith in God and the power of God will get the job done. Amen? Then he does something that blows my mind in verse 40. Would you notice this? I'm saying he had keenness as a volunteer. He was a shepherd. Shepherds brought staves wherever they went. Because they knew never leave home without it. Amen? His staff probably in his left hand. And would you notice verse 40? He chose him five smooth stones out of the brook. Look up here. Listen. Was he not near a mountain? Right? Didn't we see the first three verses? And were not the Philistines by a mountain? Weren't there plenty of rocks there? Were there not? And David, David had been sizing up the whole area. He'd been looking at the situation, been studying it. And he saw this brook, this small flowing stream of water, which most likely sustained those Israelites for 40 days on that field. Because they would have ran out of water if they brought their water. They got their sustenance from that flowing brook. They got refreshed from that brook. And David went to the brook and he looked at it and he says, you know what? This water's been flowing through a little bit. It's taking some of the, sh the edges off these stones. And he, he got, he the Bible says he chose five smooth stones. Now the Bible makes no mistakes. Every word of God is pure. And he went to the brook and he drew from that brook. Notice this, he drew from the brook Five smooth stones, one at a time, he put in his shepherd's sling. One at a time, he put in his shepherd's sling. He drew five smooth stones. He, drew, he knew perfectly what God wanted him to draw. He knew exactly what to have. Let me remind you tonight, the brook is a picture of Jesus Christ. If you're going to get your weapons, you're not going to get it from an institution. You're not going to get it from some university. You're not going to get it from some elite personality. You've got to get everything you need to go to battle and serve the Lord. You've got to get it out of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
He went to the brook that never runs dry. He went to the brook which is living water. Jesus said, drink of me and you'll never thirst again. He that drinketh out of me, he said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Listen, if I'm going to get something, I better get it from Jesus Christ. Amen. If I'm going to get a sermon, I better get it out of Jesus Christ. I better get it out of that flowing brook. If I'm going to get the power of God, I better get it out of that flowing brook. If I'm going to get something to feed the people of God, I've got to get it out of that flowing brook. I'm telling you tonight, what some of us need to do, we need to find that flowing brook of the word of God and we got to immerse ourselves in that book and in that book we draw from the brook and get the water out of it that never runs dry and say God give me what I need for the people there and then he got five smooth stones and each one of those stones are significant because they represent a weapon that we need to have listen it's the weapon of the word of God it's a weapon of prayer the weapon of the power of the Holy Spirit the weapon of faith and I like this fifth one it's the weapon of the local New Testament church And by the way, did you ever notice in the story he only threw one stone? Did you ever notice that? You know why? In fact, did he look at the stones to see if they were numbered or if they were colored? No. He just, they were all the same. Why? Because any one of those weapons can defeat the giant. You want to defeat the giant? The church, the word of God, prayer, faith, the anointing of God. I mean, on and on and on, the power of God. I mean, he knew every one of those. And so he drew from that brook and he got what he needed there. Finally, tonight, one more thing, two more things. Would you notice the victory? So now he's going to have the confrontation. We're almost done. David's going to take it to the giant. The giant's angry that he would dare exercise faith. The giant's angry after 40 days, somebody would come forward, but it was the worst looking young man, the worst person looking person on the whole field. It was the weakest looking person. It was a youth. It was not a man of war. And the Bible says he cursed. Let me tell you tonight, if you make a decision for God to be in faith promise, and you make a decision for God to serve on the mission field, you make a promise to God, you're going to do something, the devil's going to curse you too. And David ran out and he says, he says to the giant, you're not, you're going down, son. Amen. You're going down today. He said, you're going down today. And all the earth, in verse 46, will know that there's a God in Israel. He says, you come out to me with your sword and your spear and your body armor, but I come to you in the name of the living God. Let me tell you tonight, you may not have everything somebody else has. You may not have the buildings that they're going to have. You may not have the money they have. You may not have the intellect they got. But if you've got God, you've got everything you need to win the battle there tonight. So look at verses 49 to 50. We've got to move fast. They run out there and listen, David, this is the moment David's been waiting for. Man, he sees the giant there and the giant's making, he's just, you know, kind of just making his way over there like this. And David says, man, you can, you can walk like that. And David, the Bible says David ran to him. David ran there hastily. He says, I can't wait to get to the field. I can't wait to get in that valley. And as David did, so watch this, David's going inside there and he reaches inside his sling and he pulls out a stone and he, says, he wraps it up in his sling and he goes, and God guides that projectile and at the only vulnerable spot and he knew where that spot was. He'd been sizing that giant along the way. The only vulnerable spot was right there on that forehead. And the Bible says, look at verses 49 to 50. It says, and David put his hand in his bag and he took thence a stone and he slang it and he smote the Philistine in his forehead and the stone sunk into his forehead. It penetrated his thick skull and hit him in the one vulnerable spot he had and he fell upon his face to the earth. And the Bible says, and David prevailed over the giant. Hey, mission possible. Amen. Everybody said for 40 days, entire nation said it was impossible. David said it's possible. And I'm going to tell you tonight, I don't care what your forefathers have said. I don't care what the person next to you said. I don't care what your father said. I don't care what your mother said. I don't care what your brother said, your sister said. I don't care what your best friend says. It's still possible to win souls to Christ. And it's still possible to win the mission field. And it's still possible you can go out and serve God. And it's still possible you can participate in faith promised missions. 
And then notice something else. David told this giant in verse 46, I will smite thee and take thy head from thee. And then we read in verse 50, he prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, with a stone, and he smote the Philistine and slew him. He killed him. But the Bible wanted to see something here. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Now, God, God wants to see something tonight, okay? God is telling you and me this. Don't be concerned with what you don't have. Use what God has already given to you. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but unmighty through God to the bowling down of strongholds. And what a humiliating defeat of this giant. This young-looking man, he barely, he didn't break a sweat, amen? He didn't break a sweat there. One swing of that stone. I don't know how many miles per hour it was going, but it went pretty fast, amen? Right there on the forehead. He hit that beast in the middle of his forehead, and he fell forward. David walked up to him, and you know, all the Philistine army, they're just kind of like, what happened to our hero? He just fell. And to make things worse, David took the giant's sword out. He picked up his head and just cut his head off. Later on, we read later on in 1 Samuel, when David was running from Saul, the high priest told him, hey, you're looking for a weapon? I've got the sword of Goliath here. And you know what David said? I'll take that. There's none like it. He says, I remember that sword. I remember holding that sword. I remember cutting the head of the giant. And you know what he was saying years, weeks later, months later? He says, the same, the same God that used that sword to help me cut off the head of the giant, he helped me kill a few more giants along the way there too. He took the head of the giant off there and he held it. And then notice if you would tonight, he got the victory. And now, the center of attention is not just on David. The center of attention is now on the entire nation of Israel. Would you notice as we close tonight the verdict? The men of Israel were paralyzed. They did not move. They would not advance. David did not criticize them. David did not disparage them. David said, I will go. When David did, would you notice verse 51? Therefore David ran and took upon the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out. He cut the head of the Philistine off. The Bible says the Philistines saw their champion was dead and they fled. Then notice verse 52. Notice what David's volunteerism and his vision did for the rest of the nation. And the men of Israel and of Judah rose. You know what? It came to a point. David did what he needed to do. Everybody else needed to make a decision too. The verdict was, do I decide for God or do not decide for God? And when they saw what faith could do, unanimously all the men gathered together. They rose and they shouted and pursued out the Philistines. And they'll come to the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the wound of the Philistines fell down by the way to Shamarim, even unto Gath and to Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from the chasing of the Philistines and they spoiled their tents. Now here's this. The men of Israel had to make a decision. When they saw David victorious over the giant, they said, we can do it too. It just takes one decision tonight, and we could do it. But now I'll tell you this, here's the part I love. What motivated all those men to know that the giant was defeated? David took his head off. David held the, the head of the giant, and he carried that, if you study the story, he carried that all the way back to the city. That was his trophy. 
I don't believe he mounted it, but he wanted everybody to know. Hey, the Hebrews, the Hebrews, the old Jews, the rabbis, they have a tradition. They say that the head of Goliath was taken to where is now Mount Calvary. They say that they buried it on that mountain, not knowing that would be the mountain, where that would be the place where Jesus would die on the cross. Hey, I like what the Bible says, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Amen? I want you to see this. David's walking, not pridefully, not in a boisterous way. He's carrying the head of that giant. And the morale booster it gave to the nation and what it did for them to stir them. He held a trophy up of representation so that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. John Harper followed in a succession of pastors at the Moody, by the Moody Church that Dwight L. Moody started. Previous to him were men like R.A. Torrey, great men of God. John Harper was an Englishman. He came after Spurgeon. And John Harper was a man that was eloquent in the Word of God, but knew something about the power of God. The Titanic had just been built and constructed. It was called the world's most invincible ship. It said it could go through any iceberg. No iceberg would stop this ship on the Atlantic high seas. Many dignitaries and many elite people bought expensive tickets to buy it, to get on that maiden voyage from London, England, all the way to New York Harbor. As many of you know, the Titanic never made it. John Harper was one of those passengers that got on that ship. He got on there with his little child, his little daughter, hoping to make their way there, and later on that his wife and the other children would join him. The Titanic hit that iceberg. The hole was ruptured. Water was pouring in. Many of you know if you studied about the, the Titanic, as it tipped upside, upwards, it, it actually broke in half. John Harper got his daughter onto one of the rescue boats, one of the boats that they got off there. And John Harper said, honey, I'll see you in heaven. His daughter didn't want to hear that, but that's all he could do. Passengers fell in the water. Those icy, cold, frigid Atlantic waters one of them was John Harper. Several years after the sinking of Titanic, a man told this story. He was one of the survivors. He said he was holding on to a piece of wood, going up and down those frigid cold waters, wondering if he was going to die. And he was on those waters. A man bumped into him. The man said, Sir, are you saved? He said, no, sir, I'm not. I'm John Harper. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And the current was so strong at the time, just a wave just kind of swept John Harper away. The man thought nothing of the words, because all he was thinking about was survival. He just wanted to get out of those cold, frigid Atlantic waters that he was in. And then not long after that, there was a bump again on that man. And the bump that came from John Harper, and he turned around, they recognized him. He said, sir, did you believe on Jesus yet? Did you get saved yet? He said, no, sir, I haven't. He said, sir, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then somehow a wave separated the two of them. Not long after that, after that wave separated again, John Harper was just bobbing up and down the water. He bumped into that man again. And for the third and final time, he bumped that man. He said, sir, he said, are you saved? He said, not yet. He said, sir, I may go down at any moment. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the last time the man ever saw John Harper. Several years later, that man was telling this story. He was one of the few survivors to tell a story like that. They said, what did you do? He said, I'm John Harper's last convert.
I'm John Harper's last convert. Just like David held up the trophy of the giant's head that he slew, John Harper did not die in vain. And I'm going to tell you tonight as I close, living for Jesus, winning souls, surrendering to the mission field, being a preacher is not in vain. It's not in vain. Some of us tonight need to get the sword of the word. Take off the head of a giant. Hold that giant's head up. May it be said of some of us in heaven one day that someone's going to say, standing before God, I'm Alan Fong's last convert. I'm Justin Fong's last convert. Denny Kwan's last convert. May it be said one day that you want enough souls to Christ, that people will be glad that they're in heaven because of your influence.